You're listening to the City Lights Podcast. City Lights is a church located in Greenville, South Carolina, devoted to building family, blessing neighbors, and bringing good news to the nations. Thanks for joining us. Actually, if you've been here forever, you should join into Mark chapter 2. But if you're just joining us, um, we are in the middle of a study of Mark. We're usually making our way through through books of the Bible. And um, the theme that we're running with for Mark is um, what most scholars agree and have consensus about what Mark agenda, you know, wanted to do with, with his gospel letter, which is to promote, promote Jesus and introduce Jesus as a suffering servant. Uh, it says in Mark chapter 10, before Culver's ever, you know, wrote it on their wall, that um, Jesus says in Mark 10 that I did not come to be served. Um, I yield to the Father. I, I, I serve others. I, um, I'm, I'm here um, with the joy of the Spirit, drawn by the Spirit into, into the wilderness, but um, I didn't come here to be served, I came here to serve and to give my life um, as a ransom for many. And I think in the couple of chapters, we're starting to recognize exactly why that, that is. Uh, because when Jesus is getting out on his nine to five and he gets, hits the trail, he's running into no, no other thing than, than the darkness of this world, than the principalities. I mean, day one, he's delivering demons. Day two, he's healing people. Day three, he's conf- confronting religious people. And I think what Mark might be whispering to us, you know, between the lines of the pages is like, this does not get done other than a man with the word from God being drawn out to go and serve. That, that at some level, this, this Messiah that's come sets his heart like flint and, and heals the sick and speaks the good news and confronts injustice and evil within our world, um, not because it makes him happy, but because the Father is pleased with what he does. And, uh, and so we're starting to just see that character and that nature of Jesus you know, in, in these passages. Um, uh, but my little, my little intro story today is this. Um, there's, there's really only two kinds of people in this world, and you know them both. Uh, you're either one of these two, and you've met a lot of these two, and that is the good roommate and the bad roommate. Um, if you are in a living situation, well, even if you're married, I guess you're kind of roommates too, um, but uh, if you do not know that you're the good roommate, you're probably the bad roommate, you know? Like, uh, I, uh, I went into college, and like, nobody taught me. I was an only child. I just did what I want. You know, my mom just like let the world revolve around me, and I didn't know you needed to put or somebody needed to put a cover over your spaghetti when you put it in the microwave. Did you know that? I learned this. This is day one stuff. Brian Shakely had to teach it to me. Did you also know that if you, uh, if you, if you have a, a kitchen fire with bacon in, in the grease, you don't put water on that thing. It turns into an atom bomb. I found that out too. Brian had to like, you know, put up with that. I've been on the other side of that coin. Uh, my second year, I rolled the dice and I thought I actually got uh, a single for the price of a double. I thought I paid the half price and got the full, you know, thing where I set up the two beds and the bunk bed and the desks, and I made this little, like, Wong cave in there. And uh, I was basking in my, uh, my fortune. And then uh, good, old, good old Keith, my sophomore year, came around. And uh, when Keith pulled out those 1989 Prince purple sheets from uh, Batman Returns and they had cigarette holes in them, I was like, I think I'm in trouble. I feel like uh, I know what Brian Shakely was dealing with. He had a poster of all the different, like, dazed and confused, like, smiley faces of the different highs that the smiley faces had, and it was just uh, big, big trouble. And so um, they tell you, you know, there's a podcast I listen to uh, uh, from Student Life, a ministry here for high school and, and, and college, that um, your parent, you should watch out because, you know, your kid, when they go to college, is going to call you in October, and they're going to be really upset, and they're going to want to come home. And they're like, I'm done with the Hot Pockets. I'm sick of the professors. I just want to come home. I don't want to eat more lighter fluid burgers, you know, cooked off a pontoon boat. Like, I just want to come home, you know, and eat a, eat a real dinner. And, and this is the, the wisdom is don't let them come home, okay? Because what, what's going on is they found a roommate, 
and they're realizing that the rules don't revolve around them anymore. <laughs> and there's different ways to call normal what's normal, and there's different cultures. And so, so they need to stick that out because they need to learn to live with someone other than just their mother uh, that's picking up after them. That's kind of the, the moral of that story. So um, we, um, we've been noticing this tension as Jesus um, is, is walking out, uh, doing his daily, day-to-day life. It's, it's not that the world just rolls out a red carpet for him. He runs into opposition. He runs into bullies, and he runs into temptation just like you and me, although he doesn't sin. And that, that temptation and that, and that antagonism is not just spiritual, it's also physical. He ro- rolls into really the, the, the category of person that represents the most antagonism for, G- for Jesus. It's not actually the rule breakers, it's the rule makers. Uh, it's the Pharisees, the teachers, the scribes. If you look for the Darth Vader, I guess, in the, in the story, um, uh, other than us, I guess, it's, it's, it's the Pharisees. And so um, he, he gives these three little parables. Remember, this is from last week where the parables are comparing, contrasting the followers of Jesus and the followers of the Pharisees. They go to the same church and they sing the same songs and they listen to the same podcasts, but there's something different in their eyes. They're made of something different. They're driven by something different. They do the same actions, but they're coming from a different heart. And if we sit back and consider it, there's a way to consider, well, these are all Pharisees of Jewish people and I'm glad that people aren't Jewish anymore or whatever, that, Jesus, that Christians aren't Jewish and so therefore we must have gotten rid of Pharisee, Phariseeism because there's no more Jewish people. Well, then you sit back and really think about it. It's like, well, clearly Phariseeism just can't just be Jewish. We think about it, really, Phariseeism isn't a certain denomination of, of, a, of a preacher with a suit and a bad hairline that's yelling at you necessarily, a fundamentalist preacher. And Phariseeism isn't just a traditionalist. It's just not somebody that's like stuck in their rules and you know, telling people to get off their lawn. If Jesus is going to spend this much ink and the Holy Spirit's going to spend this much ink on the pages of Scripture, clearly there's a much more perennial vision for legalism than just Pharisees. That all of us people we're, are not just rule breakers, we're rule makers, and we love to get into our little caves and create rules, and the rules are the main thing. Not the rule breaking, but the rule making is what really ultimately keeps us from Jesus, that Phariseeism and legalism is not Jewish, it's human. It's humanism. Everybody's a big nonchalant hippie until they're a lifeguard. Put you up on that chair where it's your, your life on the line, your job on the line, your, 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 your lawsuit on the line, and watch how fast you grab for the rules when you're responsible. When you're the teacher in charge, everybody's a big, you know, James Dean, where they're the ones that are just, you know, hanging out and have to, like, wave their fist at the man trying to push down the rules. Put you in front of 50 little middle schoolers and see if you don't grab her some rules real quick. <laughs> if it's not you on the line, if you want those rules. If it's not your kid in that hospital, if it's not your kid that's getting pulled over, if it's not your, your life and your livelihood, see how much you grab for the, for the rules around, around your pain. I mean, ultimately, when you think about it, the older brother and the younger brother in the prodigal son story, wasn't the younger brother just as much of a legalist as the older? Wasn't he running from home to make his own rules? There's no such thing as people that have the rules and make the rules. We're all little rule makers. And it's not really whether or not we have rules. Because we all have rules. It's like if, if you don't have rules, you're just disorganized. <laughs> rules are boundaries on paper. And if you're saying you don't have rules, well, wait till I offend you. And then we'll figure out what your rules are. <laughs> like rules are, are there. It's the question of our relationship to the rules. And what we think the rules are. And who gets to decide the rules and how we enforce those rules. And ultimately where we place our faith regarding the rules. Pharisees are not just people that follow the rules. Pharisees are people that actually have faith in the rules. Pharisees are people that grow up in a really suffocating, legalistic background, and so they tell themselves, when I grow up and make my own household, I'm not living by these rules. We are going to be laughing and free and live, laugh, love in this house. We are not going to be down-spirited and mean, right? Pharisees are people that grow up in chaotic backgrounds that are just, just hippy-dippies and there's no boundaries and no rules. And so they grow up and create punctuality. In this house, we will be punctual. In this house, we will be organized. In this house, we will be winners. We will not be losers. Phariseeism is, is faith in the rules. 
It's faith that the consequences and the punishment is the thing that actually brings transformation. It's putting them in that timeout. That timeout is the thing that will save them. I'm not saying that rules can't help, but rules, rules can't save in the way sometimes that, that we think they are. Sometimes rules come out of our testimony. We got saved by a Beth Moore con- you know, conference. We got saved by Jesus culture. We got saved by a certain speaker. And so if we could just get the right alchemy of things together, if we get those rules to work, then everybody will be saved. And so Pharisees, not just following the rules, it's believing and having faith in the rules. But here's the problem with the rules. How many people can sit in a penitentiary for 30 years and learn no lessons? How many times have you tried to shove the rules and the handbooks down your employee throat? And there's ways that you can have that Chick-fil-A worker say my pleasure, but they don't really mean my pleasure. The rules and the timeouts are the things that are accountable for sure, but rules can keep us safe, but they can't save us. Rules can't reach into the human heart and change. Only one person can do that, Jesus. Jesus is the one that followers have faith for, faith in Jesus. Jesus, he says in, in, in the parables of the bridegroom, is, is a husband. Paul says that when we got saved and we got baptized, we didn't just die to sin, we died to our rulemaking. We died to the law so that we could not just run and do whatever, so we could marry to Jesus. Christians are not guided by the carrots and sticks, we're guided by the nudge. Jesus, if it quenches your spirit, I don't want to do it. If it, if it hurts your spirit, I'm guided by the nudge, not by the consequences. That's what I want for my child. That's what you need for your students. That's what we need for this nation is that people's hearts would get married to Jesus, that they would want not just do what he wants, but to want what he wants is what a Christian is. That the material is different. That legalists and followers of Jesus, they sing the same songs, but some of them are just doing it because their neighbor is doing it. And some of them are doing it because they're in love with Jesus. That the covenant itself the covenant, the old covenant. Jesus comes on the mountain. He says, you know, like not clicking on a certain website on your computer is the floor. That law was there to show you that you're not reaching the floor. You need me to, and not just to follow the law. We're going to fulfill the law. How about opening doors for daughters of God and praying for them in their future marriages and their future husbands, not looking at somebody with their tight pants on. That's the floor for a Christian. Because the covenant's too small for the circumcised heart to burst forth out of it. The fulfillment of love is too big for the law, and so therefore the wine breaks the wineskin because the law is too small for love. So what we're going to read today is that the, the topic shifts, right? But the sermon's the same from the last time to this time. And the topic last time was fasting, when we eat and when we don't eat. And today is about the Sabbath. And there's a big Sabbath showdown, almost like the two cowboys, you know, coming into town, the sheriffs squaring off against each other. Really, Sabbath is another word for kingdom. It's the complete picture where everything is in its right place, seeing what man does with that picture and what God does in his picture. And Jesus confronts the Pharisees and vice versa when the Pharisees catch him eating grain on the Sabbath. They're nitpicking about the way that he eats. And they're frustrated because he's healing somebody on the Sabbath because healing somebody would be a work. And so their religion makes a day of rest into just religion and and dead weariness. There's this conflict over feeding the poor and healing the sick and just walking in the grain fields. And there's a nitpicking back and forth to reveal, really, these two different Sabbath Sabbath kingdoms and Sabbath visions. And I think that this this story is more than just a picture and an old tale. I think it's a mirror for us to consider who we are following, if we're following the rules or following following Jesus. So this is what Mark chapter 3 says. It says, uh, Mark 3... Actually, I think it's the end of Mark 2. I apologize. Mark 2, 23, and then it gets into Mark 3. So you're in 2, 23, but it says, um, One Sabbath, Jesus was walking through the grain fields, 
And his disciples walked along. They began to pick some heads of grain. And the Pharisees said to him, look, why are you doing what's unlawful on the Sabbath? Um, I read a, a great book by John Mark Comer one time called The Relentless Elimination of Hurry. That's a big red book about just the industrial age and why America has moved from a needs-based to a wants-based economy, and we just think we need things that we just want. And so we just work harder and keep chasing it, and we never get what we need, and so therefore we're burning out. That's a tr- true story. <laughs> Maybe it's happened to you before. Um, and, and I start with that uh, just to say one um, uh, funny story is that I listened to that uh, book, The Relentless Elimination of Hurry on Times Three. So might need to work on the spirit of, of uh, why I'm reading the book in the first place, right? But secondly, to say that, that that's, that is a good auxiliary and ancillary topic, but that's not the heartbeat of what this scripture is talking about. Today, the scripture is not talking really about rest. It's not talking about what to eat or what not to eat or grain or, or how far you're walking. Ultimately, what this is talking about is law and law-breaking. If this is a court case, there's an opening statement, right? And the opening statement needs to explain the burden of proof and what evidence needs to come forth to prove the innocence or the guilt of somebody, right? And the opening statement isn't, do you rest enough on the seventh day? Although that's a great sermon to talk about. The bullseye of what we're talking about today is, is, is Jesus a lawbreaker? Does Jesus break the law? Is he a rebel without a cause? Is he a James Dean? And so we got to understand, right? So what's, what's at stake here? So just a quick little briefing of the Bible study here, the law review, is that the Sabbath was, was more than a day. It was a promise. The Sabbath was the seventh day. It's like when you know you, you, uh, you mow your lawn and you brush it all off and you sit back in that lawn chair and you crack open the Diet Pepsi and you're just enjoying the completeness. I know it never happens, but when it does, it's great, right? Okay. And, so, and so with the Sabbath is not the picture of man's greatness and fullness in, in a lawn chair. It's the picture of God's completeness, it's when everything, you organizational people, right, everything's in its right place. That's the Sabbath. It's not a day off and a day to just get out on the, on the boat. The Sabbath is God's completion. And so when we practice the Sabbath, we understand the Sabbath is a person, but we practice our obedience to that by stopping our work even when it's not done. How hard is it to stop an email, stop a project, cease from working even when it's not done? Because our doneness seems to be the thing that we trust the most. But what we're doing on the Sabbath as a Christian or a Jewish person is saying it's done even when we feel like it's not that his complete work of the Holy Spirit has put everything in its right place, even from the foundations of the earth, even when we don't feel like it. But our own hearts and our spirit can betray that sometimes, and so what the Jews did is they took the spirit of this law and they create extra rules on top of it. You know, when you go to the the Grand Canyon, you don't put the fence like two inches away from the wall. You put it like 15 feet, because you don't trust those toddlers. They're just going to climb the wall, and you need 15 feet to go get them, right? So you need to create this fence for the law, and they created all these different categories of how to define you know, this really esoteric and maybe hard to contemplate thing of what, it like, what it's like to live in God's doneness and not our doneness. And so they come up with all these rules. There's 39 different categories, and I'll just read them just for the effects, not that we have to memorize them for a quiz or anything, but to carry something, you know, if your purse was too big or something, or to burn something if you need to burn sticks or extinguishing a fire. I guess you just let the forest go on, you know, burning or something uh, in, a, in, a, in California. Uh, don't finish anything, uh, and don't write anything, and don't erase anything, and don't cook anything. I guess you'd just be so hungry, right? Uh, you should have cooked it before. Washing, sewing, tearing, knotting, untying. Uh, if your shoes, you just put them over your feet, I guess. You don't untie the shoes. Um, shaping, uh, don't, make, don't make snowmen on the Sabbath. That's, not against, that's against the rules. Shaping, plowing, planting, reaping, harvesting. That's exactly what Jesus was getting busted for. Threshing, winnowing, selecting. So there's 39 different categories, and Jesus was breaking two of those things. Um, and so ultimately, if you look at what the law is and what Jesus was doing, and you actually just have the court case right there, then the verdict is this. Jesus broke no law, but he did break their rules. Jesus broke their rules, but he did not break their law. And so watch this. This is super interesting. Jesus takes them to the law review, and he does a little Bible study. 
But unlike what we usually do when we go to Bible studies about defining a sin or not, he doesn't go to a list, he goes to a story. And this is the story he reads. He says, you know your hero. It's a lot easier to, um, to kind of um, romanticize the way that heroes break laws because in retrospect, history always shines great on heroes that break laws, right? But in the middle of it, maybe it, does, it seems a little more dubious. But remember David, like everybody understands who David was. He was awesome and we should follow his example. David, you know, him and his companions were getting chased by the anointed king that man had anointed all throughout the, uh, the wilderness, and they're starving. And so David shows up to the door of a, of a church. He shows up to the temple. And in that day, Abiathar the high priest meets him, and David enters into the house of God, and there was the, the showbread, the bread. And the law said that the bread that is on these tables, if, if, if a homeless person came in or if the king of Israel were to come in, it only went to the priests. The letter of the law said that David wasn't supposed to eat, but it puts you in a quandary if you're in that situation. Should I fulfill the letter of the law or should I fulfill the spirit of the law? Should I feed the hungry or defend the rules? That's what's at stake. So he puts that story before you. And he says, you know, it's only lawful for the priest to eat it. And then he says to them, now remember about Sabbath. And not only Sabbath, the entire law and all the rules. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was to help man commune with God. And sometimes we use it to disconnect man and God, but it was not meant to use it that way. So the Son of Man is even Lord of the Sabbath. And so it's not the main point, but you you heard my gist before. Oftentimes when we think about that question, you know, is homosexuality a sin? Is drinking a sin? How many drinks can I drink before it's too many? We go to the Bible because we we want a list. But no matter where you go, if you go to the Old Testament, the definition of Torah law is the first five books of of the Old Testament. The law, according to the Bible, is not a list, it's a story. The genesis in the creation was, a law, was the law, that Moses coming was the law, that Abraham trusting God for righteousness was the law. The entire thing is a story that is explaining the law because the law is not a list of do's and don'ts. It's a wisdom. That's what Torah means. Or if you go to the New Testament, we're so quick to ask ourselves, you know, what did Paul say about this? And what did Paul say about divorce? And what did Paul say? We want a list, but God gives us a letter. He gives us a picture of an apostle writing a letter to the church that he loves. And if we try to read the list without the letter, we miss the point. And so he reads this story, and ultimately, if you watch for it, Jesus actually wakes up and chooses theological violence. Like, Jesus is a peacemaker, but he didn't come to bring the sword. He came to bring the sword in some cases. And he's not a war starter, right? But he will confront us in our sin. And so watch, because Jesus, what he could have done, ultimately, if he wanted to skirt this issue, he could have just said, I didn't break your rules. That's the end of the argument. But he didn't stop there, did he? Jesus escalated up the ladder and said, not only did I break the rules, but you interpret the law wrong. And not only that, not only do you make bad rules and misinterpret the law wrongly, but because you are so blind, you're missing the Lord of the Sabbath even in your midst. Not only am I not breaking the law, I'm fulfilling it, and you're the one that's breaking the law. And so we're remembering here that healing is not just a touch, it's sometimes a surgery and a confrontation. But this is the takeaway. This is what he's basically saying is that the Ten Commandments that God gave to Moses were only a a consolation to us because we were so stubborn-hearted, we didn't know what to do with the One Commandment. If everybody loved the Lord their God and their neighbors their self, we wouldn't have to be told not to covet our neighbor's wife. How about that? If you love your neighbor, you wouldn't be staring at his wife. So the Ten Commandments are a consolation, and so the law actually was never meant to be a window of ways to look out into your world. It's actually meant to be a mirror to show that no matter how I try, I can't only not only reach the ceiling, I can't reach the floor, and I need not just a better fix and more explanation of the rules, I need a savior. 
And so the law was meant to lead us to love, and love is meant to lead us to the Lord. Okay? And so how do you simulate this? How would you simulate this in the story, in, in, in today's context, if we met up with Jesus? I had a nightmare the other day. You guys know I'm afraid of blood, and I'm also afraid of heights, deathly afraid of I just don't, I don't. Every sometimes I have a bad day, I think, well, at least I'm not in space. You know, like, that's, that's how much I don't, I dislike, I dislike being vertical, okay? And so I had this dream, and I probably was just a, a being spiritually attacked, where I was in an elevator, and the elevator somehow just dropped out, and I was hanging on to the side of the elevator shaft, looking 50 floors down like Die Hard without a gun, and I was, like, super scared, okay? So much so, this is just my little personality and neurosis, that I woke up and I started Googling what you would do if you were in an elevator shaft, if you were in a situation like that, because I couldn't stand to think that was an awful situation to be in. And I didn't find the answer to that. But what I did find uh, was uh, a story of this um, uh, little um, 16-year-old girl who was with her sister hiking. It wasn't a mountain around here, but hiking in a mountain. And she just stepped aside um, to, uh, to allow uh, this other hiker with the baby carriage to step by. And she slipped and she started falling off the side of this cliff until she grabbed onto this little twig, and she was holding onto it. But she said it felt like an hour, so it was like 30 minutes of trying to hold onto this thing, while all of the spectators were up there trying to decide what they should do. Do you know there's a good Samaritan law that says that if you go over the side of the cliff and you cause or inhibit or might, you know, at least not lead to the saving of the person, if the person dies, you might be indicted for it. There's a good Samaritan law that says don't go off the side of cliffs. And there was a sign that even said, you know, don't go too side to the side of the cliff, right, of the law. But this guy decides to makeshift a bunch of jeans and jackets and ties them all together. And together, this little crowd puts down the rope, and he himself slides down there and grabs hold of her and reaches her and pulls her up to the other side of the cliff. Is the guy breaking or fulfilling the law by not looking at the sign and deciding to look at the girl? Isn't that what's happening? The law or the spirit? Or Anne Frank, the great philosophical paradigm. If a Nazi comes to your door and Anne Frank's in your basement, do you tell the Nazi that he's down there? And if you tell the Nazi that she's down there, did you break the law or did you fulfill it? Sometimes we're too dumb to spite our noses. Here's another one. Before this cell phone age, if you heard of a person that had eight perpetrations on their record and they had been accused of a $20 counterfeit bill and they had resisted arrest from the police and you find out, found out that he died, you might thought that he was the criminal. But the cell phone age shows us the spirit of the law. And when you see George Floyd on that videotape, it's pretty hard to deny he might have skirted some of the letters of the law, but he was the victim of the, of the spirit of the law. He was, not a, he was not a criminal. He was a victim to the spirit of the law, if you watch it in, in plain sight, right? And so this is what, what Jesus is doing, is he throws us off because everybody can look back at Martin Luther King and realize he was the hero. And everybody can look back at Thomas Jefferson and everybody look back at Rosa Parks and realize he's a hero. And it's a disorienting thing to see the very people that you look up to and admire break the rules that you're trying to defend sometimes, and so this is the question, like, how would you simulate this? Like, how would God take us out back into the law study, into the Bible study? And I would ask yourself, I would ask ourselves this question. When we see something break in our nation, like a school shooting, how fast do we put our faith in legislation? I'm not saying we don't have legislation. I'm not saying that we shouldn't have good rules for protection, but we know the difference between a law and a savior. The law can keep us safe, but they can't save us. And so my question is, is not do we have legislation. My question is, how quickly do you pray for those students, for the teachers in that school, and for the heartache of this thing, instead of running to righteous indignation about why if I was in charge and I had the rules, it would all go right? Do we realize this place is a fallen place and the only healing comes from Jesus? I believe that, the, that, the, that unborn life is life, 
And I, and I don't think it's a safe thing to have legislation that promotes that kind of a thing, but ultimately, do we really believe that legislation is going to save sexuality and identity and motherhood and justice in this nation? How fast do we run to the legislation, putting our faith in it and trust in it, rather than putting our faith in Jesus to heal our communities, to, to, to change my heart, to convict me, to move me on these things? That's what I think he would be saying to us at a, at a time like this. So he, he takes it to them. Notice he, asks, he chooses violence. He could have just said, I didn't break your rules and move on. He would have been right. But he, he moves at the ladder and he starts talking about their business. And he starts talking about the way they interpret the law and their blindness to the Lord. And he doesn't just stop in his house, right? They meet him in the field, but then he takes it to their church. If you and me got in a fight over who is more guilty, it'd be easier to prove my guilt at my house and easier to prove your guilt at your house, right? Because I can look at your bed that's not made, but if my bed's not in sight, you can't see it. So he goes right into their church, and what does he find is a, sh- a man with a shriveled hand who's not healed. He's showing the contrast of these two Sabbaths that take place. One is the feeding of the poor, and one is the uh, oppression of the sick that is going on in their church. So after some time, Jesus goes into the synagogue, and a man with a shriveled hand was there. And some were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely. So that here's a sick guy and the Savior, and they're staring at the Savior, but not for the right reason. Sometimes we'll be looking at Jesus, but we're looking at him for the wrong reasons. They're looking at him to accuse him, to see if he would heal on the Sabbath. And Jesus says to the man with the shriveled hand to make an audience of the thing they should be spotlighting, stand up in front of everyone. And so Jesus chooses violence, he escalates, he advances, he ups the ante. Like at first, it's like, man, the difference of this law is really not somebody gets a lunch. This is about somebody's life right now. And, and the heart of, of what's coming out of this Sabbath contingency is, is really revealing. In the Sabbath picture of Jesus, where we're feeding the poor, healing the sick, and walking with God, over here, we're starving the poor, shriveling up the sick, and plotting to kill Jesus. And so legalism, in contrast with the gospel, is the exact opposite of the gospel. Legalism sees the laws as a mirror, not a window. It's an opportunity to prove unrighteousness outside of me in order to negate and project so I don't have to think about the unrighteousness that's, in, that's inside of me. And the laws were not made to be legal. The law, the law was made to guide us towards love that we might meet the Lord of the Sabbath and the Lord of love in Jesus. And so how would we simulate this story? How would we simulate not just the Bible study, but the life study that he puts out in front of this little synagogue, this little church? It wasn't in this circle, but it was in another Christian circle um, that I was reflecting on um, a couple years back where, where just one of the ladies in this, in this community got a divorce just up and got a divorce. And it wasn't because of infidelity. It wasn't because the guy was cheating. It wasn't because of of alcohol or or domestic abuse. She just wasn't happy, and she thought that happiness was somebody else, so she's got a divorce. And what kind of drove people crazy was, you know, she got the divorce, and she actually seemed happier. She seemed happier, and she was doing her thing, and the kids and all that kind of thing. She kind of made it work. And people were so upset. (laughs) They were frustrated. And it was just really interesting because you saw that that heart, the heart, the heartbreak and the way that people talked about it, I mean, to some degree, there was, there was a hurt and, and, and wanting more, I guess, for this family, for these kids. But in the, in the little side corners of the thing, you could almost hear that the reason why people were so flustered and hurt about it was not because they were hurt for the woman that got the divorce and the family was breaking up. It was that they were jealous in a way because they, in a way, wish in some th- ways that I think that they could get a divorce. And they were upset, I think, by the rules that weren't being followed and the happiness and the consequences that weren't happening. Ultimately, I think what Jesus is saying here is not only are you not using the law, you're abusing it. And you think that you're using it because you want the world to be fair, but really you just want to win. You want this law not because you want everything to be right. You want this law because you're offended and you want to be right. And you want to use the law in any way that you possibly can to prove that they're wrong so that you can be right. And so this thing is not just neutral. It is aggressive that you're, you're plotting a murder in the middle of a Sabbath. 
So how would, you, how would you simulate this? How would you take this home? I mean, if you really think about it, we don't want all the laws to happen all at once. We want our laws to happen. We want our rules to happen. Why is it that we want punctuality? We want punctuality in the workplace. Is it really because we want to honor and serve the people around us so that customers can get their best thing? You know? Or is it because we don't like the way it makes us feel insignificant when people disrespect our boundaries? And so when we execute the laws of punctuality, is it really because we want what's best for everyone or because we want what's best for us? Why are we defending the whales? Are we trying to create laws to defend the whales because our best friend is a whale? I mean, maybe. I don't know. I don't know. I, don't, I mean, I love whales. Or is it because we want to be heard? And we feel victimized. And, we're, and we want something to make sense. And we want to cry out. And we want to be heard. And we want some, some way to project this pain. Like, why do we really want the rules? Why do we want people to speak in tongues or not speak in tongues in church? Is it really because we want people to be close in their prayer closet with God? Or is it because I want to be a black belt? And I want to have a significance to teach other white belts about how to follow me so I can be a black belt too. Why do we want Calvinism? Isn't Calvinism the wonderful doctrine of sovereignty so that people, when bad things happen, can cling on to a good God knowing that he's in control of it? But when we preach Calvinism, it's so much less about giving confidence to other believers and more about this elitism, about the doctrine that I know that you don't know. And why I'm smarter than you, why I have real Christianity, you have fake Christianity. Why do we want the rules in the first place? Is it so that there can be healing, or is it so, so there can be killing? And so this is the, the great tragedy, right? The triumph and the tragedy of legalism and the gospel is this, that Moses was a better lawmaker than Thomas Jefferson. Like, I love living in the United States. I think the Constitution's great. I think we should all have rights and freedom of speech. But Moses is a better law. And even that law, the best law, God's covenant law, was not enough for bad men. You can take the best laws and the best conferences and the best church designs and the best small group models and you put them in the hands of broken hearts and they're going to ruin it. We are masters at using every law and paradigm and, and carrot and stick for our own benefit because it's not the law that's the problem, it's the heart. And we will use good laws with bad men to kill people in the middle of the Sabbath, to starve the poor, to shrivel the, the sick, to, to, to murder the Savior is what's going on. But this is what Jesus has come to do. Not to bring good laws, but to bring good news. That he knew this and that he came on our behalf to become the die for sinners to be, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That he came not just to, to give us more laws and burdens and more motivational speeches and more clarity on what we're supposed to be doing and more practical tips for the next steps. He's came to change the heart because if you have a, a changed heart, then the law is the floor for love. Against these things, there is no law, says Paul in Galatians 5. The fruits of the Spirit. Good news, even to the worst of Hitler's, is still salvation. So here's a little um, idiosyncrasy that I noticed in the scriptures this week. You, you, you tell me. You go on the Bible study too. I believe that in, you know, Ephesians and Galatians, Paul is saying that, you know, it is not God's best for us to be intoxicated. It's not God's best for us to medicate ourselves and run from our problems with liquor, right? Drunkenness is, is not God's ideal. Can you tell me one time, I was just thinking about that, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, that Jesus ever went on the street to go confront a drunk person and tell him to stop drinking? I couldn't find it. I can't find one time when Jesus goes up to a prostitute and just outright says, you know what you need to do? You need to get your act together. You need to stop turning tricks. This never happens. The Romans, this oppressive, systematic slavery that they're putting their boot on the neck of the Israelites. Tell me one time that Jesus ever said to a Roman, stop being Roman. Why does he do that? Does Jesus not care about sexual purity? Does he not care about ethics and integrity? Does he not care about justice, social justice? I don't think that Jesus isn't preaching against 
those, you know, these types of rule-breaking sins, it's not because he doesn't believe in the rules. He just doesn't believe that the rules can change people. He doesn't believe that that's the solution. It's not that he doesn't believe that drunkenness and licentiousness and sleeping around and, 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 um, and militant authority is, is not a problem. He believes that's a problem. He just doesn't believe that clarifying the rules is the solution. Jesus doesn't believe in the rules. He believes in the tomb. He doesn't believe in good becoming great. He believes in dead people coming to life in Jesus. If he thought that the rules were going to work, he'd probably be great at teaching them. But he doesn't. It's not that he doesn't care about the rules. He doesn't have faith in them. He doesn't believe in them. Like, I'm so thankful. Like, I had great parents in my life that showed me the right way. I had small group leaders that had accountability. I've had preachers in my life that have shown me the way. But when you really look back and think about all the accountability and all the reminders and all the encouragement, like, was that really the thing that ultimately changed your heart? Was it just Jesus? It's not the rules. It's Jesus that ultimately saves. And sometimes it's either because of the pain or because of the healing that Jesus does for you that we like to take little tight controls of our pharisaical synagogues and make monuments out of what God did in our life and make those things the rules and the measurement that we can control, which actually robs us from the very healing that Jesus is doing. Jesus doesn't, he's not anti-rules. He came to fulfill the law, and he believes in the power of the Spirit, not in the power of the rules. So here's the closing statement of the whole case. It's a question, but really nobody answers it, so it's the closing statement. Jesus asked them, so like, let's get to the heart of it. I mean, it's not about John Mark Comer. Like, this is about lawfulness. Which is lawful to do on the Sabbath? To feed poor people or to starve them? Like, this is how bad it's gotten. Is the Sabbath about feeding poor people or starving? Is it about healing poor people or shriveling up their hands? Is it about killing the Savior? Or getting saved. What are Sundays for? What is lawful on the Sabbath? To do good or to do evil? To save life or to kill? But they remained silent. So he looked around them in anger. He went from the law discussion to the love discussion, ultimately the lordship discussion. And he realized that the law, and we all realize through this, that the law is a mirror, it's not a window. And there's anger here. There's a discontent. Sometimes our healing is a touch, and sometimes it's a surgery. Sometimes it's pruning. And he goes up to them, and he chooses theological violence. <laughs> He's angry and distressed at their stubborn hearts. And he says to the man, stretch out your hand. Like, this is what he points to. He points to the shriveled man's hand. But ultimately, this whole thing, the, the main character of, of who we're listening to in, in this plot is not the sick guy, it's the Pharisees. He's healing the sick guy in their presence because he's trying to speak not to the sick guy, but to them. This is what your heart looks like. This is how shriveled you are. This is, how, this is how empty you are. This is how bankrupt you are of any kind of conviction or compassion or love. You use your rules in the name of God to push out strangers and immigrants and stand on people and use them to promote yourself and, and to oppress other people, right? And he's like, if this isn't clear, I don't know how to make it any more clear. This is what your heart looks like. And so here's your sermon illustration for those that are watching, right? Stretch out your hand. And as he stretched out his hand, he's completely restored. That's the fulfillment of Sabbath is rest, restoration. Stretch out your hand and he's healed. This is it. This is, this, is, this is the only expression. This is where healing exists. You thought to yourself, man, that Pentecostal preacher, he was so emotional, he was on fire. We just need to get people into Pentecostal preachers. That's not what saved us. It's just a stretched out hand. That's all that it is. If we had the good systems and I, had a, I was in young life and look how organized it was, if we could just get more organized around here, gosh, if I could be in charge, we would get saved already. That's not what saves people. This is what saves people right here. It's, it's, only, it's the only thing that saves people. There's no music. There's no melody line. 
There's no hymns or no hymns or long hair or no hair or tattoos or tattoos or Harry Potter. There's nothing that saves except for this. This is it. It is a stretched out hand that says, I'm sick and I need you. I'm stuck and I need you. The rules that I've tried, they don't work and I need you. I've tried the meditations and the disciplines of life. I tried my parents' rules and my friends' rules and I tried to make my own rules and I rebelled against God and I rebelled against you, but this is what I'm realizing. It's the rules. They can't save me. I can't save me. I'm a sick, shriveled hand and I need to get saved. I'm stuck and I need to get saved. That's, that's what it is, even without any music, without theology, without doctrine. It is the poor in spirit coming before God that leads to the healing. Stretch out your hand, he says. And the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. And so this is my question, the intentional question for the day as we kind of move into communion here. But we all have rules. Like, when was the last time you were offended? Oh, that was your rule. Somebody broke your rule. There's no, not a problem with having boundaries. Not a problem with being clear. Not a problem with having rules or a, or a, or a routine. Like, like, if somebody is addicted to alcohol, them not going into a liquor store is a good rule. There's nothing wrong with rules. Like, Jesus didn't come to abolish rules. He came to fulfill them in the death and resurrection of Jesus. Rules are not bad. It's what you do with those rules and how much you believe in them. Do you believe it's the willpower? Do you believe it's the pain that you need to inflict on that person so they learn what sin does to others, that that pain and sense of justice, is that what's going to heal them? Is it the time out for your kids and the natural consequences? Is it the gentle parenting that you're going to do different from your parents? Like, is it the system and the chore chart? Is it the penitentiary and the prison? Is it the, is it the justice that that person's going to get what they deserve so they finally, is that really what causes people to be healed? What do you do with your rules is the question. Do you believe that your rules are here to actually save people? And so ultimately, I think that, that grace, grace is not a couch, you know? Grace is a car. Grace uses hard things and good things to lead us to Jesus. Grace is meeting people where they are and helping them take their next step. If you have a student in your classroom, like the reason why they're not going to change because you keep on barking at them is because they need a heart change on it. And so give them a good boundary and meet them where they are, but make sure that the boundary is not punitive, it's restorative. It's meeting them where they are and using that external process to get them to take their next step towards Jesus because ultimately doctors can do what they want, but Jesus is the healer. Jesus is the miracle maker in this world. Thanks again for joining us. If you have been encouraged or challenged by this message, please give us feedback by leaving a comment on this podcast. For more information on our church, visit us at www.citylights.cc.